Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, which can be found at americansongwriter.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. Our guest on this episode of Songcraft is Richard Marks, who is best known for writing and recording hits such as Don't Mean Nothing, Hold On to the Nights, and Right Here Waiting. But that's only part of the story. As a songwriter, Marks has written number one hits for other artists ranging from Kenny Rogers to Josh Groban to NSYNC to Keith Urban. He's sold more than 30 million albums as an artist, earned the Grammy Song of the Year as a writer, and with the publication of his new memoir on July 6th, is now an author with many amazing stories to tell. Part one. Well, this is kind of a big day in the life of Songcraft. Yeah, I hold in my hands uh, three different Songcraft t-shirts in three of the five available colors. Uh, we, we mentioned that we're, you know, doing t-shirts now, but this is the first time I've actually held them in my hand. They look good. Yeah, they do. I'm I'm thinking one of these days I'm going to get, you know, brave enough to put one of them on here. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, don't let anybody know you're associated with this podcast. <laughs> right. By all means. Um, but no, for anybody, you know, if you're tired of running around and shouting out loud, <laughs> Songcraft is my favorite podcast. Now yeah. you can just wear this T-shirt. Yeah, wear the shirt. Know. It's uh, we, you know, the typical T-shirt that you're going to see is like white or black. But we thought, you know what? Songcraft is not your typical podcast. No. So we've got kind of a, a brick red color. We've got kind of a, an army greenish kind of color we've got a, a tan um there's like some a couple of gray variations so if you go to songcraftshow.com uh up in the upper right hand corner there is a tab that says t-shirts and you can go on there and um order one that you think is right for you or you know if you're an uber fan maybe just order all five and then you you've got your wardrobe for every day of the work week <laughs> totally yeah get them for your friends whatever i, I actually really look forward to getting the email from somebody when we say, how'd you find out about the podcast? And they say, I saw it on a t-shirt. Yes. I was, I was at Disneyland and I was waiting to ride space mountain and the dude in line behind me had a Songcraft shirt. I kept turning on and kept looking at him going, what is that? And I finally yeah. just Googled it, and now I love your show. I yep. think that, that could happen. Yeah, anyone who makes a T-shirt that looks that good yeah. must have a great podcast. Must know how to do a podcast. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, if you've ever wondered if we uh, are as visually engaging as we are auditorially <laughs> engaging, just check out these shirts and you'll know. Yeah, yeah, that's how we look. <laughs> yeah, that's, we We're look, the human equivalent we of look, these T-shirts. We look like, I'm, I think I'm the red one. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I give you that. I, I get. I tend to get a little sunburned. Yeah, I'm kind of this sorry-looking earth tone. We don't have any sorry-looking t-shirts. <laughs> no, awesome. Not at all, not at all. So yeah, songcraftshow.com, uh, check it out and get yourself a t-shirt. And you know, it really does. I mean, we joke around, but uh, uh, it really does sort of help spread the word. And, yeah. and this podcast really grows by word of mouth. So if you like what we do, you think it's a good thing, uh, you know, then, then check it out and, and uh, help spread the good word to all the folks out there who need to be hearing these great conversations too. Speaking of uh, emails and the email that we will eventually get, you know, telling us that someone found out about us from a t-shirt. Uh, you said that you, you've been going through the mailbag some recently. We've got some, uh, some yeah. new communications. Yeah. I hope they're positive. 
Yeah, and yeah. Not like it's, the one that said the... a bottomless low. Remember that? That was <laughs> yeah, fun. I do remember that. Yeah. And I like that that was the one negative one we got. And that's the only one that that's, we can. That's, that's the only one, one I remember. Yeah, too. that we can quote. Um, no, I, I got one uh, from a guy named Trey here just the other day. He said, uh, I've just started listening to your show from five years ago and decided to join up to learn about new episodes. So he mentioned that he had just recently listened to the Steve Cropper episode, which yeah. is which is going back, uh, you know, a, a ways. Um, but he said, uh, basically, he said, I, I came to your site. I wanted to, to contact you guys and tell you how impressed I am that you've landed some big kahunas since the uh, yeah. since the very early days, you know, <laughs> some heavy hitters. So he, he's really excited. He says uh, it's going to take a lot for me not to just jump ahead as I love to discover, you know, all the different people that you've spoken to. Thank you for all you do. The subject is great show. Wow. So it's always great, you know, yeah. uh, and you might be listening and thinking like, ah, these guys don't care. Like, well, what, you know, am, am I supposed to like send them an email and tell them I like the show? They probably don't want to hear from me. We love this stuff. Oh, we, we really know, love this stuff. It's really cool to hear yeah. that people are digging the show because ultimately we're just kind of fans of getting to talk to the people that we talk to. Um, so, Well, we, you don't you know, get to do a podcast to a live audience, or at least not in most cases. Exactly. There is no clapping. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. if we don't, we don't know if this stuff is working, falling flat, or if you guys, until you tell us. Yeah, we're just so. speaking into the void and uh, hoping that you find this stuff uh, entertaining. <laughs> and uh, it is, it is great to hear. So if you love the show, uh, you know, shoot us an email via our website, or you know, go on Facebook or or uh, Instagram or wherever you yeah. follow us, and uh, let us know what you think. Even if you hate it, you can still let us know what you think. We have one today that I think is going to be a lot of people's favorites, though. I don't think any going to hate this one no. um and and i've been looking forward to it for a while we got to sit down with richard marks yeah i mean i feel like a particular connection to some of these songs i mean some of them were things that i learned when i was just learning how to play myself right uh, right, right here waiting i even mentioned it to him yeah it was one of the first things that i ever learned on the piano i'm glad you did i think he was really he needed to hear that <laughs> yeah, i think uh, it's important for him you know, to get the support. Was, yeah. he, he needed to know yeah you know just as just as we are begging you to compliment <laughs> us by email i think yeah. richard probably needed you to validate totally. him in that way um <laughs> you know one of the interesting things about it is that we didn't just talk about his artist career right there's a lot that richard marx has done since that point which people may not know i mean uh this i promise you uh for in sync I mean, that's a richard yeah. marx song yeah in sync's only number one hit amazingly yeah and some some huge country stuff with keith urban i mean uh, we're talking about spanning decades of success yeah um and it, i thought about this you know we we've talked to people like dan wilson or linda perry who had artist careers and then went on to have success behind the scenes as writers. Yeah. But I don't know that I can think, I can only think of one other example of somebody who had that kind of name recognition for mm -hmm. like a, a decade of chart-topping artist success and then went behind the scenes to find success as a writer. I, the Bee Gees are the only example I huh. can think of otherwise. Yeah. Um, and, and you start thinking, like, you know, what what is it that happens there? I mean, I, Richard kind of touches on it in the interview where he... He felt that I think at the end of the 90s, he could feel a shift happening right. in, in pop music. Um, but obviously, your ability to put songs on the radio hasn't hasn't gone away because he came right back with this. I promise he was a number one hit for yeah. NSYNC. So there's something about the image that people associate with an artist. Right. That the public says, okay, we're going to turn a page. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it certainly happened with the Bee Gees in, oh, yeah. in a very kind of obvious and outward way. Um, well, but and then they, they go into write Heartbreaker. They were around for in in like all the way back to the 60s, but yeah. then they got so associated with the disco period, and then the whole world goes, yeah, we don't like disco anymore. Um, and then, you know, okay, well, we'll go write Islands in the Stream. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, and obviously, like you say, 
Richard Marks uh, was like such a definitive pop artist in the late eighties, early nineties. And you might say, okay, well, so here's a guy who kind of transitions to behind the scenes. Um, but he's writing songs for NSYNC, which is the biggest like right. pop act of, of that time. Um, which just as with the Bee Gees, it's like, well, we, we know how to write and, and what we write is not bound necessarily to this one time period that people associate us yeah. with. We know how to write for like across the board. That's an interesting, you know, comparison. And I agree with you that I can't think of anyone who's done the same because like you say, with Linda Perry or Dan Wilson, it's like, well, those guys had, you know, like a couple hits as right. an artist, but then like the bulk of the career was really, yeah. was the behind the scenes stuff. Whereas with both Richard and the Bee Gees, it's, it's almost equal. And, and it's probably important to note that, um, Richard was writing songs for other artists before his artist career took off. Right. You know, right. The, the Kenny Rogers stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and the Bee Gees were doing the same thing or at least trying to, I, I think to love somebody was originally intended to be something they were pitching maybe to somebody like Otis Redding, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, really? I and then even during the, the heyday, they were writing songs for their brother, Andy Gibb. Right. And, you know, trying to get maybe out of their own cocoon and onto the radio. Richard's over there writing songs for Vixen. Yeah. Um, so this idea of writing songs for other artists had already been there. But man, what, what a, you know, what an amazing quote unquote fallback. Yeah, it's almost like, uh, you know, to a degree, Prince kind of did that a little bit. Yeah. Not not to where he had a shift in the career, but where he always had side stuff going on. Yeah, I feel like, for you, Shaka Khan. I got so much stuff happening in my head. Yeah, Manic, Manic Monday. Monday. Yeah. yeah, it's like I got so much going on. You know, Prince is like, okay, I'm going to put out a bunch of records as Prince, but I've also got Morris Day and the time over here. Yeah. And I'm going to write and produce all of this stuff as another outlet because there's no way I can get all of this stuff into the marketplace just under my and, own name. And by the way, Emancipation was a triple album. <laughs> so he's making triple albums right. and still needs more outlets yeah, yeah. for his stuff. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. Um, I like that question, though. I think uh, I'd be curious to hear actually from listeners, you know, yeah. while you're writing us to tell us how great you think we are. And the T-shirt um, and all that. You know, yeah. and to order your T-shirt, yeah. of course. <laughs> then, uh, you know, let us know if you know of somebody else that kind of fits that category. And, and you know, and to the degree that we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, did, did we miss one? Because yeah. it's, it's possible that we have. We're just two dorks sitting here looking at each other talking about music. But um, right now, Richard Marks and the Beaches are the, are the two biggest examples I can think of. So, I bet if Richard Marks and Barry Gibb did something together, it would be pretty cool. I think it would be really cool. Yeah. Maybe we can work that out now that, now that we're friends with Richard. <laughs> Definitely. We're, we're, I think... I think a one hour interview in the midst of a day when he probably did a half dozen qualifies yeah. as tight, you know? Yeah. And like, now we can come back and start, you know, yeah. telling him what we think he should do. Yeah. Know? And be like, Hey, here's a suggestion. Yeah. We don't know Barry Gibb, but you should make this happen. And, uh, we'll talk about it more when we hang out to discuss <laughs> you becoming, exactly. uh, Paul's, uh, kid's godfather. So <laughs> <laughs> that is usually what's next on the list. Yeah. Yeah. It's a natural progression of things. Um, well, let's, let's take everybody into the interview so they can hear just how close we got. Part two. Grammy-winning performer Richard Marks has sold more than 30 million albums as an artist. But if you only know him from the late 1980s ballads such as Hold On to the Nights and Right Here Waiting, you only know part of the story. A prolific songwriter, Marks has landed 14 songs at the top of various Billboard charts and has written a number one single in each of the last four decades. 
His genre-crossing songwriting success includes What About Me and Crazy, which Kenny Rogers carried to the top of the adult contemporary and country charts, respectively. Edge of a Broken Heart, a hit for the female metal band Vixen. This I Promise You, a top five pop single for NSYNC that stayed at number one on the adult contemporary chart for 13 weeks. Josh Groban's debut single, To Where You Are, which also reached number one. And Dance With My Father, which Richard wrote with the song's performer, Luther Vandross, and which earned the pair the prestigious Grammy Song of the Year Award in 2004. Additionally, Richard has scored three major hits with Keith Urban, the top five Everybody, and the number one singles Better Life and The Long Hot Summer. Despite all his songwriting success, however, Marx is best known as a singer and performer who today jokes about his 80s hairstyle and of-the-era drum sounds. But the songs are undeniable, all of which Marx wrote and produced himself. His debut self-titled album yielded four top five singles, Don't Mean Nothing, Should Have Known Better, Endless Summer Nights, and Hold On to the Nights. His follow-up, 1989's Repeat Offender, was even more successful, going quadruple platinum and earning two number one Billboard pop singles, Satisfied and Right Here Waiting, in addition to the top five Angelina. More hits followed, including Keep Coming Back, Hazard, Take This Heart, Now and Forever, and Until I Find You Again. In addition, Richard's songs have been integral to a number of successful film soundtracks. He earned a Grammy nomination for his contributions to St. Elmo's Fire, scored a top 10 pop hit with Surrender to Me, which Ann Wilson of Heart and Robin Zander of Cheap Trick recorded for the movie Tequila Sunrise, and wrote at the beginning a hit duet for the film Anastasia that Richard performed with Donna Lewis. Over the course of his career, Richard's songs have been recorded by Barbara Streisand, The Tubes, Sarah Brightman, Monica, Natalie Cole, Michael Bolton, Paulina Rubio, Emerson Drive, Chicago, Billy Ray Cyrus, Vince Gill, Kenny Loggins, Leanne Rimes, Celine Dion, Julio Iglesias, Barry Manilow, Daughtry, Vertical Horizon, Lifehouse, Dave Cos, Jennifer Nettles, Ringo Starr, and many others. His memoir, Stories to Tell, is available July 6th from Simon & Schuster. Richard, welcome to Songcraft. Thanks, guys. How are you? Doing good, doing good. Um, I actually want to start at the end, so to speak, with the last paragraph of your new memoir, Stories to Tell. You wrote, uh, I love being known as a songwriter. Uh, when I travel internationally and have to fill out customs forms in the box labeled occupation, I never write performer or singer. I always write songwriter. I consider writing songs to be an elegant and noble profession and I plan to never retire. I think that's the, that's a great ending of the book. And during our time together today, we want to really trace that songwriting thread from your early life through your artist career and on through the many songs you've written for other artists. So I'm going to hand it off to Paul to, to take us back to the early days. Yeah, you write in your book that one of your favorites of your songs is Through My Veins, which was never a single or really one of your best known songs, but it's a tribute to your father. Um, and I understand he was a jazz pianist and commercial jingle writer who opened his own successful agency that produced you know, several well-known TV and radio commercials, many of which your mother sang. Um, I'd like to hear about what impact your dad had on your future songwriting sensibilities, uh, especially in terms of constantly exposing you to these jingles, which are inherently catchy and hooky. You know, the, the, the main things that both my parents, but particularly my father, passed on to me were his innate sense of commercial commerciality in his composing. Um, and it's also important to, 
to note that you know he he wasn't a songwriter. He he I think in his entire life he might have written two or three songs. Hmm. He wrote thirty or sixty second hits. And when I say hits, it's like you know guys like me, we have the, I have the luxury of four minutes, four and a half minutes, sometimes <laughs> six minutes to you know to do a song. My dad was in a business where you had to you know the hook had to come immediately, and. Hmm. You know, coming from the world that he began in, which was he, he began as a classical pianist, then a jazz pianist, um, he was a bit of a snob musically. So when he got into the jingle world, he was even surprised that he had this talent to come up with these melodies that were, as they say, a one listen. And that's why he was so successful in his field for decades. And I think that there may be something genetic about that. Um, I think it's hmm. partly maybe genetic and also because um, aside from being uh, a snob in his early days, he also really welcomed every kind of music into his life and his, into his world. So I grew up not only hearing the music that he was composing, but my parents exposed me to the music of the day. So all my friends, parents, listen to old jazz or classical music. They were not listening to the Eagles or Billy Joel, you know. Um, my parents, on the other hand, were listening to every, everything that was popular at the time. Um, so I grew up around commercial music. I grew, I grew up around um, not only the, the music that was being played that were hits on the radio, but my dad would listen to albums. Like he would listen to every track of an album. And so it just, this was the music that was going through the walls of my house. So I definitely got that from him, but I also got, and I think that this is equally, if not more important, I got the love of going to work every day from him. I got this mm -hmm. before, I think even before I recognized that I had musical talent or that I could maybe have a career in the music business in some way, shape or form, what he inspired in me was wanting to do something for a living that I loved. I, I would, there were times when the pressure on him was immense. You know, he would be having to do three sessions in one day and he had to have composed the music for those in the day before or two days before. He was, he was working so much that it was a very high pressure business. But every morning, you know, he left for work around the same time I went to school and I would see my dad walk down the hallway, grab a quick breakfast, and he couldn't wait to go to work every day. Huh. And I think that no matter what you do for a living, if you have kids and you love your, your job, you're passing something amazing on to your kids. If they see a parent who can't wait to go to work, that's inspiring. And so I, yeah. Yeah. I, I really, I, I put both of those as very important uh, things that, that I was exposed to for, from both my parents. Um, that were amazing things to grow up around. You know, I was, I was actually a little surprised uh, by this passage in your book. You, you wrote, thanks to my two uncles by age 11 or 12, I had become such a fan of the day's modern country music that I barely listened to pop or rock music for about two years straight. I was all about Merle Haggard, Jerry Reed, the Gatlin brothers, Waylon Jennings and, and Lynn Anderson. Um, and you know, that struck me because you were a young kid um, but country music in the seventies was really like adult music with adult themes. Um, and even though you weren't, you know, yet writing songs of your own, I I'm curious if you've ever thought about what kind of impact, 
absorbing all of those kind of adult themes at a young age might have had on your future lyrical sensibilities? Wow, that's a really good question I've never even contemplated. Um, you know, my first thought, of, the first thing I'm thinking is that, yeah, it was adult, but I think that it was the real storytelling. Um, hmm. It was my first exposure to real storytelling in songwriting. There was a little bit of it. Um, you know, I loved Jim Croce when I was a kid. My, my parents hmm. loved him. And he was more of a folk pop guy, but he told stories in his songs. And yeah. Harry Chapin, same thing. Um, so I was, I, I was, I gravitated towards some of those songwriters who were not country at the same time as I was listening to a lot of country music. So I think that it was the sense of storytelling. Um, hmm. I also think that, you know, in my opinion, the 70s, the late 60s and 70s, I think that was really the heyday and the golden era for country music as we know it. And not only was the songwriting amazing, and there's still really great songwriting in country music, um, you know, day after day. But the other thing that that was taking place, there was no auto tune, so you you succeeded or failed as a singer based upon your talent and your talent alone, right? Right. I, I remember thinking and being aware that there were there was a lot of pop music and pop artists who were great and then there were a lot who really weren't that great vocally but you were hard pressed to find a singer a successful singer in country music and definitely in R&B music who weren't exceptional hmm. so i think that that was a that was really influential too like hearing even the, even the country artists who were not known as much for their singing, like there was a guy that I was a huge fan of named Jerry Reed, and he was mm -hmm. legendary. He was an amazing guitarist. He wrote a couple of big Elvis Presley songs. He was in Smokey and the Bandit. He had a whole other career as an actor. Um, and Jerry Reed was this sort of funny, uh, kind of redneck. He wrote a lot of songs about trucks and, you know, like, like a lot of country music. Um, and a lot of it was tongue-in-cheek and comical, but then he would sing, and you'd go, wow, he's like also a really great singer. He was like this sort of stealth great singer. Hmm. But you had to be. And yeah. you'd, you'd, if you watched the Country Music Awards back then, or if you watched um, you know, the R&B artists who would perform live on television, none of them ever embarrassed themselves. They were always badass. And hmm. over time... That I noticed as, as I got older into the 80s and 90s, all of a sudden I'd start to see performers just totally shit the bed live. And, <laughs> right. and it was like, oh, they're just getting by by studio trickery. They can't really fucking sing. They, it's, all, it's all phony. Um, but back then you had to have the goods. And yeah. so I think it was a combination of all those things. Um, that was a really good question, though. I think that the... The, I got so into country music that it definitely influenced me as a songwriter, a future songwriter. Um, I didn't go into the storytelling in the same way, really, until I wrote Hazard, maybe. But it was always, uh, it was always something that impressed me, for sure. 
Well, as you moved into your teen years and had those dreams of being a singer and songwriter, um, you got a call from a very famous guy named Lionel Richie when you were in high school that changed the course of your life. Um, yeah. I'd love to hear, uh, it's, we're hitting fast forward a little bit to get there, but I'd love to hear how that came about. It really is a, kind of a, a remarkable story in that the happenstance of it, the things that needed to click for it to become a story were so ridiculous. And it really became a thing where I knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy that worked with the Commodores. It was, <laughs> it was really that. And I had only written, I think, four or five songs, and I had a demo tape of them. And my friend, who I went to high school with, who was now going to college in Atlanta, um, his roommate knew a guy who knew a guy. So that's how it connected. So my friend from high school was playing my demo tape in his dorm, just like he, he would play an Aria Speedwagon record. You know, he liked my music. So, I mean, right. separate from his friendship with me, he, he liked what I did. And he would tell people, yeah, this is my friend from high school and he's trying to make it as a singer-songwriter and these are just his first four songs. He's pretty good, right? And his friends would be like, yeah, he's good. I like his voice or whatever. And then the next thing I knew, um, he said, yeah, this guy that knows this guy says he's going to play the tape for Lionel Richie because he works with the Commodores. And this is when Lionel was just about to go solo. And he was mm. arguably, you know, maybe next to Michael Jackson, the biggest guy in, in, the, in the music business. Yeah. And um, maybe... I mean, back then it felt like it was years, but it was probably six weeks later that the phone rang at my house and it was Lionel Richie. It was like, wow. <laughs> it was, and, and this is an important part of the story. And I think I write about this in the book. I'm sure I write about this in the book. Um, for, for many years, when I would tell the story of how Lionel Richie heard my tape and called me on the phone, which then led to me Moving to LA as soon as I graduated from high school, him hiring me as a background singer on his first solo album and his subsequent albums, and just sort of helping get me out to LA and get me going. Um, that gift that he gave me, um, the beginnings of it, when he first called me, I, when I, for years and years and years when I would tell the story, I would always say, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that the, the person on the other end of the phone was Lionel Richie. Yeah. But the truth is that that's bullshit, that there was always a part of me that felt, and I, it's hard to explain this without sounding like such a cocky dick. <laughs> and it wasn't that, it wasn't cockiness. It was, I believed that it was going to happen. There was a part of me that felt like, well, yeah, of course Lionel Richie's going to call me. This is what I want. This is what I want. This is what's going to happen. I didn't recognize it at the time, because I was 18, 17, that I was manifesting this stuff. And I was, you know, whether you believe in manifestation or not, or to what degree, I think what is sort of irrefutable is that the things that you think about the most dominate your life. <laughs> and what I was thinking about nonstop, other than girls, uh, was a career, was success was getting out of Chicago and getting getting a record deal or, or just being part of that world 
because the the jingle world that I was in as a singer with my parents was awesome, but it was not what I wanted. It was never what I wanted. It was it wasn't my dream. What I wanted yeah. was to be accepting a Grammy. What I wanted was to be in the in a studio making records with great musicians and great artists and and so that was the beginning. That was really the beginning, I think, of how I willed people and things into my life. Mm-hmm. And it started with that phone call with Lionel Richie. And, but it also, yeah. you know, I don't want to overshadow the graciousness that had to be present in him. Because, yeah. you know, let's face it, he could have heard my tape, even if he really liked my tape, which he says he did, he could have heard it and said, yeah, he's good. You know, tell him I said good luck. <laughs> and that yeah. would have been nice. Right. But no, he was like, "What's? oh yeah, his phone number's here, I'm gonna call him. I mean, what does that say about Lionel Richie? That tells you everything yeah. about Lionel Richie. Yeah, incredible. Yeah. Um, I understand that it was through Lionel that you really got your start in the business as a background vocalist, which then became a gateway to getting access to artists for your earliest cuts as a songwriter. Um, talk about how that part of your career developed in the early days as those new doors began to open. Well, yeah, it's true that I sang on, I mean, the first session I ever did in the record business was You Are by Lionel Richie. <laughs> I mean, that oh, was wow. the first Jeez. session I ever sang on that was a record session. When Lionel called me, I was finishing high school and I had plans to go to college and I just scrapped them immediately because when Lionel Richie said, dude, I think you should move to LA and give it a try out here. You can't do it there. And you know, yeah, if you, he said, you know, your parents are going to kill me if I say don't go to college, but <laughs> you know, you can always go back to college, you know? Yeah. And my parents were all for it, I have to say. That was a, I give them huge props. Um, and so maybe six or eight months later, I had graduated from high school and I m- made my way out to L.A. Lionel said, if you get out here, you know, look me up. And when I did reach out to him, he was in the studio making his first solo album. And he invited me and my dad, my dad moved me out to L.A., over to the studio where he was recording and he was doing background vocals on that song on you are and they'd been working on it for a day or two and couldn't find the, the vocal blend that he wanted and he had told me early on i don't have work for you you know i can't help you other than to just you know give you advice or you know be be around you're welcome to come by the studio and say hi whatever yeah but it all changed because he had a light bulb moment he was frustrated because they couldn't find the right blend in these background singers. And I was just sitting there in the control room with my dad watching and he pointed to me through the glass and said, come out here. And it really started that way. He said, try this part. And he loved the way it sounded. And so not only was it an amazing moment for me, but now I had a job. recommended me as a background singer to Kenny Rogers who he had a you know great friendship and working relationship with 
having written Lady for Kenny and um, and Kenny was still a you know badass like a real powerhouse in the, yeah. in the in the industry and so now I was excited I had two days booked singing background vocals on a new Kenny Rogers album and I sang on something on the first day Kenny was there um, working you know in in the room and I overheard him saying to the producer that he still needed a ballad for the record. And I was leaving the session knowing that I had a session with him the next day. And I went home that night and I wrote this song called Crazy. And I came back because I saw the opportunity in it. But I also was scared shitless because when you're the background singer, you don't go up to the artist and go, hey, I've got a song. That's like a good way to get your ass thrown out the door. Seriously, it's like, it's amazing he didn't go, get this guy the fuck out of here. Like, right. But again, graciousness. And and graciousness is something that you, that's a, that I found is a consistent quality in really successful people. Um, so Kenny was gracious enough to, instead of calling security to throw me out, he said, well, let me hear it. And we sat down at the piano and I played it for him and he said, okay, let's, I love it. Let's do it. And he made a suggestion, like a one word suggestion. So now he was a co-writer on it. Um, (laughs) And the song went to number one. I guess I'm crazy. Crazy for you. Can't you see? And although Right then and there, my songwriting career was born. And my professional songwriting career. And now I'm like, now I'm in the game. And then Mm -hmm. now it's up to me to just keep it going. But Lionel Richie and Kenny Rogers sort of in tandem changed my life in that year. You know, it's you're saying now I have a career, and I'm seeing that you have like multiple careers. You know, at, <laughs> at that moment you you were a background singer who was doing quite well, and yeah. then now you're a songwriter who's doing quite well. And the only thing to come next was the artist career. Right. Um, and in 1987, you released your debut self-titled album. And I'm looking at this first single, "Don't Mean Nothing," and I'm thinking about you growing up listening to the Eagles, yeah. and somehow then on your first single you've got Randy Meisner. Timothy B. Schmidt and Joe Walsh on the song. Uh, I'd love to hear about how that song came about and how it came about that way. Well, the, the 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 first answer as to how that came about with having those guys on that record, the smug, arrogant answer is because that's how my fucking life works. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, I just explained it to you. And, but I got to tell you guys, like, when that happened, even though this, you know, there were a couple of things had happened, the Lionel thing had happened, um, in a way, the Kenny Rogers thing, too. I was a big fan of Kenny Rogers, obviously. And the next thing I know, you know, I'm not only singing background vocals on his record, but I, he's, I'm writing songs with him that he's recording. Um, I still, even by the time Don't Mean Nothing came around, and as a major lifelong Eagles fan, now I've got Joe Walsh, Randy Meisner, and Timothy Schmidt on that record, on my first single. 
Even then, I could certainly recognize my good fortune, but I even then didn't quite get that I was doing this. I was making this shit happen. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so I was still sort of this wild-eyed kid going, can you fucking believe this? You know, I was, that's <laughs> who I was for many years. Yeah. Um, the song was, um, I, was I, I was writing songs occasionally. I was writing mostly by myself, but one of my early co-writers, one of my first co-writer actually ever, was um, a guy named Bruce Geich, who's an amazing guitarist. Um, and I met him through doing jingles with him because he lived in Chicago and he was the main guitarist on the jingles that my dad produced. And he's, he was like 10 years older than me, 11 years older than me. So when I was, you know, 14, 15, he was in his 20s already and starting to write songs. But I, I think I just hit the story he tells, and I don't remember this, um, and we've been lifelong friends. But Bruce tells the story that this, you know, the boss's kid came up to him one day and said, hey, do you want to write a song with me? And Bruce said, I looked at him and I was like, okay. <laughs> and we started writing songs and they were good songs. And, and it was really helpful to me to, in my, in my solo songwriting, uh, I find that even to this day, if I, if I collaborate, if I go co-write a song with someone, I will come home from that and then write three songs by myself the next day. Because it just sort of lights wow. the fuse. It flips the switch. Um, and so Bruce, I loved writing songs with Bruce, but it also really fueled my solo songwriting. Hmm. And so this is now years later. This is five, six, seven years after we had started writing songs when I was a kid. Um, I, he came over to my house in L.A. And I said, I don't know. I just got this idea for this guitar riff. And I sang him the, the riff, which is also the melody of the chorus of Don't Mean Nothing. That's what I, that was the initial idea for the song. And Bruce went, oh, I love that. And he grabbed his guitar and played it on the guitar. And of course, it sounded so much better when he played it than if I tried to play it. And because uh, I'm a shitty guitar player. Um, <laughs> and so we wrote the music in no time. And then Bruce went home and I had already sort of fleshed out a little bit of Actually, this is, it was storytelling before Hazard, actually. My first hit, you could say, was sort of a storytelling song. Um, I wrote the lyrics overnight. We did a little demo of it, and, and I had just gotten my record deal. And, you know, we weren't counting on this song at all. I, I got signed on the basis of Endless Summer Nights and Should Have Known Better and some other songs. I hadn't even written Don't Me Nothing until after I got my record deal. And... The, the little d demo we did at home at my, at my house, my manager and the record company like went, oh my God, this is fucking great. This should maybe be your first single. And so it was going to be the first single probably anyway. But then little by little, these guys were brought in. You know, my manager was like had a distant acquaintance with Randy Meisner. And... And Randy was still pals with Joe Walsh. And, and when Randy Meisner came in and sang uh, background vocals on it, he, or when he heard the demo, he said, you know, Joe Walsh would play the shit out of this solo on this song. And I went, yeah, and if I were seven feet tall, I'd be in the NBA. 
Uh, <laughs> but Randy said, no, I'll call him. I'll see if he likes the song. It really, he said, with Joe, it always comes down to that. And a couple days later, he said, yeah, Joe loves the song. He'd love to play on it. And, and then I had met uh, Timothy Schmidt through my friend Bruce Geich, who I just mentioned, because they'd been working together a little bit. And then it just happened. Like, Randy wow. and Timothy came in. I don't think that they'd ever sung together, because uh, hmm. they were members of the Eagles and Poco at different times. Right. Um, and then Walsh came in to play the guitar solo at the very last minute. And it was, uh, it was just remarkable. And, and those guys certainly were, if not completely responsible, partly responsible for it going to number one on the rock charts and just launching my career. You know, you mentioned two other singles off that album, uh, and I, I want to get slightly into the weeds a little bit, talking about Should Have Known Better and Endless Summer Nights, um, both of which are songs that have uh, choruses that I would say you you can dance to them. There, there's a, there's a, Endless Summer Nights has kind of a light feel to that chorus, Should Have Known Better, super up-tempo, but both of them have this kind of sense of drama uh, in the intros, for sure, of Should Have Known Better. And then Endless Summer Nights kind of swings out of the chorus back into that minor key thing each yeah. time. And I'm curious about the role, even with an up-tempo song, an up-tempo radio song, about the role that melancholy plays in your writing and your production. Oh, great question. Um, it plays an integral part, and maybe the most important part. Hmm. Um, I've found that even in my happiest periods of my life, uh, I, I need to tap into a, an element of, if not melancholy or sad, uh, at least bittersweet. Because, yeah. you know, I mean, I have written a couple of songs that maybe didn't have much of that and I, that I still like, but generally I find happy songs or songs that lack those elements to be you know, it's frankly boring as fuck. Um, mm. I, and I think it's because I so more relate to heartache and melancholy and aloneness and sadness as a person than I do elation and happiness. Um, mm. I'm grateful that I've had a lot of happiness in my life and I'm currently enjoying the happiest time of my life. But I can still tap into the times... I can close my eyes and and know and remember exactly what it felt like when I was in the worst parts of my life, and I think that that's really where the poetry comes from. And I, I I'm always a little hesitant to to talk about this this way because I don't want to reinforce the idea that you need to be miserable to write great songs. I don't think that that's true. It fucking helps. <laughs> I will say that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I but I think that if you've lived enough, even into your 20s, if you've had relationships or if you've had, you know, real disappointments, um, you now have a well to go to. And that's really where I think poetry lives the most. Um, 
The other thing I don't want to just gloss over, which I never really thought about it too much, but I remember, and I think it's still true of my songwriting even today, I have always loved the juxtaposition of a minor key verse into a major key chorus. Hmm, interesting. Um, there's something that's so um, satisfying about it. It's like, it's like a tension relief and then back to the tension. And then the tension relief, and then maybe back to, you know what I mean? So it's never, it's never just yep. one thing. Yeah, that's what happens with summer came and went without a warning. That line right yeah. there. It's like, ooh, you drew me back in there. songs I've recorded uh, but I would say probably if I were to glance at the lyrics 95% minimum have either outright sadness or melancholy in them or elements of it for sure huh yeah you know I, I found it really interesting in your book you write about the fact that you know should have known better and endless summer nights were were songs that you'd had a while that you were shopping you know to to try to get a deal but once you got that deal you mostly um wrote new stuff for the album instead of relying on kind of the the bag of songs that you had accumulated up to that point and and one of those of course was hold on to the nights which was your first billboard number one pop hit hold on to the Uh, you, you talk about your your vision for that song and the way um, that it has uh, this unique chord progression and you wanted to allow the right type of space in the production and you know it, it, it's not typical that that a new artist is usually producing their own material which you had the the chance to do but you you talk about getting pushback from the label that they wanted you know like the the drums to kick in sooner and they wanted kind of a, a different sonic quality and, and you kind of dug your heels in and said no I, I you know th this is how it how it goes which makes me wonder you know as a songwriter when you are composing when you're creating are you already kind of producing in your mind are you kind of not just writing melody and, and lyrics but even formulating sonics and and production ideas as part of the the creative writing process always the answer is always i've never hmm. experienced even in my early days of songwriting for some reason i've never written songs in a i've never thought of songs in a sort of linear melody uh, almost clinical or scientific sense i've always the minute I come up with a melody, I hear the whole production in my head. Now that might they may that may change as I'm 
developing the song and working on the song. But for the most part, it's, it's, it's whatever I initially heard in my head. Um, it very rarely changes much. I hear mm -hmm. the groove, I hear the sound of the drums, I hear the landscape of the production. And maybe that's what enabled me to be a decent producer, at least for my own stuff, you know, and, and, um, and other artists as well. But I, I think that, I, I, don't, I can't remember ever writing a song where I didn't hear the whole production and record in my head before I went into the studio. And then the job was just to try to get what was in my head onto, back then, a tape machine. Um, right. <laughs> yeah, I never think of it. I, I hear the guitar parts. I hear the, and and then it's then it's this really sort of fun process because in the in the attempt to bring to life what's in my head, that's where it does usually become collaborative. There have been some records where I've played everything myself. I've done everything myself, um, yeah. but I generally love to collaborate with musicians and my favorite thing still is to cut a track with a band you know live in, in the room yeah and as those things progress and then with the in the overdub process you know guitar overdubs are to to this day my favorite part of making records uh, i remember years ago i was talking to a really successful producer record producer and he was just sort of bemoaning. He was just burnt out, and he just like was kind of over it. And he'd had a lot of success, but he was sort of like not digging what he was doing anymore. And I said, "Man, I just..." So when you wake up in the morning and you know you've got a guitar overdub session that day, he goes, "I want to fucking kill myself." And I went, <laughs> "Wow, man! Like I can't wait to get there." And I'll spend the entire day and night doing that with a great guitar player, where I'll go, "Hey, what about this?" Or he'll say. Oh yeah, I like that, but what if I add this at the end? Or what if I change the tone here? And what if we put reverb here and a delay that... Like, I'll nerd out on that shit forever. Hmm. Because for me, it's just fun. It's such... It's, it's yeah. like, you know, standing next to Rembrandt and painting, you know, trying to come up with something on a canvas and Rembrandt's going, well, what about this here? Like, that's how I view these yeah. musicians. They are just... They're brilliant at what they do. Yeah. And their willingness yeah. to uh, accept what I considered sometimes to be ridiculous ideas and make them work. And in the process, we, we, we've done it together. Uh, it's just, it's joyous. It's so, yeah. so much yeah. fun for me. You know, conventional wisdom is that an artist has their entire life uh, to write their first album, but, you know, just maybe a year if they're lucky to, to write their second, which makes it hard to kind of top <laughs> your debut. And I mean, that was something that you kind of intentionally avoided, even with your, your first uh, record. But you, you write in the book, uh, I knew that as tiring and mentally draining as touring can be, I needed to be writing my second album while on the road. It never really became a challenge for me. I would be so amped up after a show that I couldn't sleep for hours and I wasn't into partying. So I would head back to my hotel room or into the back lounge of my tour bus and write songs. That kind of reminds me of, you know, what you said about the example that your dad set, you know, that it's, it's a, it's a work ethic. You, you, you're going to work, you know, you're, you're thinking ahead, you're, you're strategizing, you're, you're planning your, you know, it's art, but you're also bringing almost a, a sense of, purpose and, and structure and business sense for lack of a better word to yeah. it, that, you know, this is my job, you know? Yeah. Um, 
and and the results with that second album, Repeat Offender, that came out in 1989, I mean, it, they speak for themselves. Uh, the first single, Satisfied, uh, went number one pop, and the second single, Right Here Waiting, went number one pop in every country, I think, that exists. Um, <laughs> I mean, that was just an enormous uh, global hit. Um, and I was surprised to, to learn that that, that song is as much as, you know, when you think Richard Marks, you think right here waiting, like it's so associated with you. But uh, I understand that, that originally your intention was that for to, to maybe be a, a Barbara Streisand cut that, that you weren't actually planning to record it initially. I never intended it as a Barbara Streisand song. It was always just going to be this song that I wrote for my ex-wife, who when I, this is when we were dating, it was really just supposed to be from me to her. Um, there were circumstances that I write about in the book where we, she was an actress at the time, and I was touring, and we just couldn't be together for months. And you know, she was doing a movie, and I was touring, and um, and I was bummed out. Like I missed my girlfriend, and hmm. I sat down and wrote right here waiting as if I had rehearsed it. It was the easiest song I've ever written. I wrote it in twenty minutes. I mean, I've written tons of my songs musically in that amount of time, but the lyrics usually take me a long time. This song came out, just spilled out, but it, the, whole, the sole intention of Right Here Waiting was for, for me to say that to her, because I'm like every other guy. Like, I, I mean, I'm lucky that I can write these songs and sing them, but I'm like every other guy. Like, I, it's not comfortable for me to like go, baby, wherever you go, whatever you do, <laughs> I, you know, I'm not going to say that. You sound like an idiot. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So the purpose was, the minute I wrote the song, I did a little demo of it and mailed it to her. And this is way before I could like send her an MP3 or FaceTime with her, you know. And right. um, around that time, Barbara Streisand's manager had contacted me because Barbara liked, she heard the singles from my first album and she liked what I did. And, uh, and I had a meeting with her at a studio and she asked me to write, come up, try to come up with a song for her. And so I thought maybe that one. And I've told the story many times uh, and it's hilarious anyway, but it's really funny because Barbara and I have been great friends ever since then. We're friends to this day and hang out. And uh, she said, I love this song, it's beautiful, but I can't do this lyric this way. You're gonna to have to rewrite it because I'm not gonna be right here waiting for anybody. Just <laughs> so classic Barbara. Um, because she is, she's a strong woman. She's like, I don't wanna sing a song where I'm like sitting around waiting for somebody. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so it wasn't intended for her, but it is something I pitched to her, which she rejected wow. and much to my success. Around that time, it coincided with some friends of my ex who had heard the demo basically saying to me, are you a fucking idiot? Like, that's a huge, <laughs> huge hit song. And you're an idiot if you don't record it. And so I just, wow. I finally bowed to the pressure and I just, look, I'll cut it. I still don't think it's right for my album. This is a rock album. It's not, you know, there's no room for this little piano ballad that's, you know, so sparse and it's too personal. Like, I, I, I came up with every excuse not to do it. But then when we wow. cut it and I sang the vocal, I did the vocal in like two takes and we just knew. Like all of a sudden the light bulb went off for me finally and I went, oh yeah, this is actually really good. If I see you next to 
Well, I mean, you know, the song had one other purpose that you didn't know about, which was to be the first song that I ever learned to play on piano by ear. Um, <laughs> so. I can't tell you guys how many people have said that to me, number one. But, and I wish I'd actually thought to remember to write this in the book, although I think it's really more of a story you have to tell. But it came down to, because right here waiting's in the key of C, and it's like anybody can play it. It's the easiest song you could ever learn to play on the piano, right? Yeah, and it doesn't, and, it doesn't require any independence in the hands, you know, right. left hand first, right hand it, second. Exactly, you know? and uh, certainly that wasn't my intention. Uh, that's just the melody that I came up with in my head, and then I played it, you know, because in a way it's sort of like the, the, the intro and the outro is the same as the chorus melody, it's the same. So. One day, I was years after it was a hit, I was in a music store with a buddy of mine. He was trying to find sheet music for something. And there was a keyboard demo room in, around the corner. And apparently this couple and had brought their 10-year-old son in to get his first keyboard. And so the salesman was putting new keyboard after new keyboard up on the stand, letting the kid try out all the keyboards in the store to pick one, right? And every time he put a keyboard down in front of the kid, the kid would play right here waiting. <laughs> that was his song that he was going to use to demo these keyboards, right? So my friend and I hear this and we go, we go, I go, what, the, what are the fucking chances? And we peer around the corner and there's this kid with his parents. And my friend looked at me and he goes, dude, you got to go in there. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the kid was playing, he was playing it right, but he was playing this one chord wrong. And so I came up behind him and his parents saw me and like f couldn't believe it, right? But I came up and I went shh to the, to the parents and I came up behind the kid and I put my hands uh, up on the keyboard. So I said, hey buddy, you sound great. But I said, this chord it actually is this chord. And I showed it to him. And he turned around and looked me right in the face and then was like, yeah, thanks. Like he had no idea who I was and just was almost like annoyed. It was almost like, yeah, thanks old man. Okay, yeah, I'll take it from here. That's amazing. <laughs> well, there are, there are so many other songs from that era we could talk about, like Keep Coming Back and Hazard, Now and Forever, The Way She Loves Me, Until I Find You Again. You, you, so many hits from that era, but we would be remiss not to talk about this transition that, that really happened around the year 2000, where you became not just uh, an artist, but returned to the, the Kenny Rogers roots, so to speak, of also being someone who's writing, uh, you know, songs for other artists and intentionally kind of focusing on that. And, you know, right out of the gate, NSYNC's This I Promise You, which, which you also produced, was a huge hit. You, you wrote Josh Groban's first hit, To Where You Are. Um, so it, it was really like this, this new, very successful phase. And I remember, um, watching the Grammys in 2004 when dance with my father won Grammy song of the year and you got up and accepted it. I had no idea that, that you were a writer on that song. And that was when I first learned that like, Whoa, Richard Marks is like writing songs for all these other people too. If I could get another Another walk, another dance with him. I'd play a song that would never, ever end. How I'd love, love, love to dance with my father again. 
know, Grammy Song of the Year for a songwriter is a huge deal. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't get any bigger than yeah. that. Um, talk a bit about that transition for you of of knowing that you're writing songs for your own voice versus getting into knowing that you're writing for other people to deliver them. Well, it, it's I know it seemed like a new thing or a transition, but it really wasn't in my mind in that, um, you know, like we, we've already talked about, you know, I came up uh, before my record deal writing songs for other artists. I had songs recorded by Kenny Rogers and Chicago and Philip Bailey and a few big artists. Um, and then my first album blew up and now I'm on the road touring and I'm an artist. I'm like a successful artist. And let's see where this goes, right? Well, in the middle of my first tour, uh, I was asked to write a song for an all-girl heavy metal band called Vixen. And they recorded their album and they, the label felt like they didn't have a first single, like a big hit launch single. And so they came to me for it. I immediately, like after a gig that night, I wrote the music to Edge of a Broken Heart and I had the chorus lyrics in my head, but I was, there was a lot going on, obviously. Uh, I was touring and doing interviews nonstop. And, and so I reached out to my buddy Fee Wayville the, from The Tubes, who's a great lyricist and my best friend forever. And, and, uh, and Fee finished the lyrics that night and the band loved the song, the label loved the song. And then I had a two day break in my tour a, a week or two later and I came back to LA and I produced it. And that became their first single, and it was a big hit. later I, I having met and worked with Randy Meisner they reformed Poco I ended up writing and producing a song for them and throughout my artist life always here or there I would do something I would I, rarely a year or two went by when I hadn't written or produced something for somebody else but it was really a, a, a sideline thing uh, and it was rare but it was always in my mind and it was something that I always welcomed. Like I, I remember thinking no matter how successful I may become as an artist, I always want to do this for other artists. Well, by the end of the 90s, my 10-year run of doing no wrong on the charts came to an end. You know, I put out a record that just didn't, didn't connect and it wasn't nearly as big. And, and to me, that was sort of the writing on the wall for me to focus more on the other career because I didn't, mm. I, I felt like I could feel the shift in pop music changing away from white male singer songwriters. It wasn't just me. It was like when I stopped having hits on, on the Hot 100, so did Brian Adams and so did Billy Joel and so did a lot of white pop artists. Um, and so I, and I felt grateful that I'd had 10 years of, great success. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I just won't do that anymore. You know, I don't want to try to contort myself into something that will get played on pop radio. I, I, I'd rather yeah. just shift into something else. 
And plus, the timing of it was great because my kids were young, and uh, and it gave me a chance to take my kids to school and be home and not on the road, and still make a shitload of music. And so when that mm. when the writing and producing career really took off in '99, 2000, um, it was a really great period of time that that decade. I, I didn't I barely yeah. did a concert, but I was home with my family and I made way more music than I would have made just as an artist. Uh, yeah, and I yeah. learned a lot. You know, I learned a tremendous amount working in so many different genres and getting to work with band, rock bands and amazing artists like Luther Vandross and, and going back to country stuff and working with Keith Urban. And, um, and I've had you know, this great, these great opportunities in so many different genres. Uh, so I feel you know, one of the many things I'm grateful for is the songwriting producing career that coincided with my artist career for sure. You know, you mentioned the stuff with Keith Urban, and uh, we're talking about multiple number one country hits with, you know, Better Life and Long Hot Summer. Um, and that gave you the distinction of, of being a writer who had a number one song in each of four different decades. Uh, that is staggering and an incredible testament to your career. Uh, and I love the fact that it's kind of a full circle as well. When we talked about country as kind of a pivotal influence for you, for you then to, you know, to find yourself absolutely conquering the country chart. Um, so I imagine there must have been, you know, by the time you got to uh, Long Hot Summer, a, a, a real sense of satisfaction with, with that period. I wish that that were true. Um, even by the time Long Hot Summer came around, you know, almost 10 years ago, I guess, or nine years or whatever, um, I, I still had this... I don't want to say unhealthy, but I, I had this need to constantly prove myself. And it also um, carried with it a chip on my shoulder. Um, there was a part of me that was like constantly feeling like I, I needed to keep proving myself, and also a little resentful that I needed to. And mm. it took me years and years to A, just understand that that's just how it works. That's just how the business is. You know, I heard Burt Reynolds, the, the actress, say something years ago in an interview I thought was amazing. He said, you know, in every other business or every other career, you're really known... If you're known for your career, you're known for your greatest moment, except in show business, where you're only really known for your most recent, you know? And wow. I mean, maybe that's not uh, completely accurate, but, but I know exactly what he means. It's like, you, no matter what you've done, it's always like, yeah, but what did you do last year? And, hmm. and so there was a part of me that was resentful of that. And so that fueled me. It fueled me to constantly shut people up who were writing me off. Um, and then I finally, about seven years ago, six years ago, really because of my relationship with my wife, Daisy, uh, you know, she really helped teach me to be grateful for what I've been able to do and be good with it and, and feel like, yeah, I still love the idea of more hit songs and but i'm not i'm not that guy anymore who's obsessed with it and you know it's like if it happens it happens and it's okay it's, everything's fine everything is just great and so when you shift 
when you shift into a, a, a sense of gratitude dominating your life, everything else sort of falls into place. And it just took me 50 yeah. years to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Well, Richard, thank you so much for spending time with us today. There's so many things that I, I would have loved to have, have talked about had we had time, but I want to encourage our listeners to go and check out the book. There's some amazing stories in there about songwriting, editing advice that you got from Kenny Loggins when you were starting out. There's an amazing thing about writing with Burt Bacharach and how he kind of pushed you to, to write in a different way for the first time. Yeah. There's amazing kind of full circle moment where you get to write and, and produce with, with your son, um, which is so cool. There's yeah. it's just the, the book is packed with amazing stories and we've only scratched the surface. So thanks for your time today and, and for sharing some of your, your thoughts and insights. And we want to encourage everybody to go and uh, grab a copy of stories to tell and hear some more of these fantastic stories. Uh, it was my pleasure, you guys. I really enjoyed it. And uh, thanks very much. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. You can also sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Conversations on Instagram and Songcraft Show on Facebook and Twitter. And finally, be sure to check out our friends at the American Songwriter Podcast Network at americansongwriter.com. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.